Hi, ParCast listeners. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Greg. Welcome back to Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, ParCast is investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet. And telling those stories. Because climate change affects all parts of society, including crimes and conspiracies. If you're enjoying our Earth Day episodes and would like to learn more or take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, assault, and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Even in the dead of winter, the Florida panhandle was never cold. It wasn't even noon yet, but the air was already thick with humidity. Ronnie Rents felt himself beginning to sweat as he trudged through the woods, searching for game. Suddenly, he saw something flash through the cypress and magnolia trees ahead of him. A bright white shape stood out against the browns and greens of the forest floor. Ronnie stared at it for a long time. Finally, he realized he wasn't looking at an animal. Before him lay the decomposing body of a woman, half concealed under a clumsy pile of leaves. Her head was nowhere to be found. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're continuing our look at Gary Michael Hilton, the National Forest Serial Killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we discussed Hilton's unstable childhood and his first act of violence committed at the young age of 13. We followed Hilton as his mental health declined with age, and he turned from a drifter to a murderer in his later years. Today, we'll explore Hilton's brutal killing spree across national parks in North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. In the end, an anonymous hero helped the police corner the murderer once and for all. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In October of 2007, 61-year-old Gary Michael Hilton was looking for a new place to call home. He'd spent the last few weeks living out of his van in North Carolina's Pisgah National Forest, a beautiful stretch of woodland in the Appalachian Mountains. He loved it there, but he knew he needed to leave. The body of his first murder victim, 84-year-old Irene Bryant, lay just a few feet from the forest path where he'd slain her on October 21st. He also murdered Irene's husband, 80-year-old John Bryant, and left his body in the Natahala National Forest about 70 miles away. Hilton worried it was only a matter of time until someone found at least one of the bodies. The safest option was to flee the state fast. He headed south towards his home state of Georgia. Along the way, he replayed the murders in his mind. The memories didn't bring him satisfaction exactly, but they did make Hilton feel in control, like a man with a skill set. After years of drifting, he welcomed that feeling. Now that he knew just how easy it was to kill, he was already thinking about his next victim. Eventually, he came to a stretch of woodland in Cherokee County, Georgia, about 70 miles south of John's body. Hilton decided this was as good a place as any to settle. He pulled his van into a clearing, unloaded his camping gear, and began setting up. By now, making himself at home in the wilderness was second nature. But unbeknownst to Hilton, he'd set up camp on private property. And on October 26th, after he'd been there for a day or two, somebody called the sheriff to complain. Within hours, a deputy was dispatched. When Hilton saw him approach, panic flooded through him. For a moment, he was sure the North Carolina authorities had already found John and Irene's bodies. But he took a second to collect himself. If the police thought he was a murderer, surely they would have sent more than one deputy to arrest him, so he kept his cool. When the deputy explained he was trespassing on private property, Hilton relaxed. They had no idea what he'd done. Of course they didn't. Adopting an air of friendly confusion, Hilton explained that he'd gotten lost during a long drive and pulled over for some rest. He even found a way to bring up his past in the military describing his stint as an army paratrooper in the 1960s. He also told the deputy he had multiple sclerosis and that spending time outdoors helped relieve his symptoms. He said, what I call this is camping therapy, and I do it just like the army, subjecting yourself to hardship. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It seems like Hilton was hoping to get sympathy from the deputy by telling this story, and there was probably at least some truth in it. What Hilton called camping therapy is a real psychological phenomenon, usually known as therapeutic camping or wilderness therapy. It's proved to be an effective treatment for a wide range of issues, including substance use disorder and self-harming behavior. Importantly though, a key part of wilderness therapy is building relationships, both with peers and with a counselor or therapist. What Hilton was actually doing in the wilderness was the exact opposite. He was becoming more isolated and more dangerous. But to the deputy, Hilton seemed like an open book, almost too talkative. He even admitted he carried an expandable baton for self-defense. He was a 61-year-old veteran who claimed to have a chronic health condition and was seemingly living out of his van. So the deputy had no reason to see Hilton as a threat. He had no way of knowing that just days ago, the baton had become a murder weapon. After checking Hilton's ID and verifying there were no outstanding arrest warrants, the deputy told him to move on by the end of the day. Hilton breathed a sigh of relief, packed up his supplies and started planning his next move. Soon, he was back out on the open road heading south. Meanwhile, in Texas, Bob, one of John and Irene Bryant's sons, was getting worried. His parents hadn't picked up the phone in days and his emails went unanswered. It just wasn't like them to be out of touch for this long. When he finally managed to get through to neighbors, they told him newspapers were piling up outside the Bryant's front door. Bob lived over a thousand miles away in Texas and had no idea what to do. His parents were avid hikers and were sometimes gone for days while traveling on one of their adventures. So at first, he probably tried convincing himself everything was fine. But by early November, he knew something was wrong. He reported his parents missing and flew to North Carolina to check on his parents' house. Aside from the pile of unclaimed newspapers and the overflowing mailbox, everything looked normal at first. But John and Irene's hiking backpacks were missing, along with their car. Dread curdled in Bob's stomach. His worst fears were confirmed. Shortly afterward, he formed a search party with a few of his parents' close friends. They discovered the couple's abandoned car about 30 miles from their home, parked on a service road in the Pisgah National Forest. There were no signs of foul play and nothing was missing from the vehicle. So far, it seemed like the Bryants set out on their hike just as planned. Whatever happened must have occurred on the trail. Authorities combed the area with search dogs focusing on the hiking trails. Detectives discovered someone had used the Bryant's debit card to withdraw money from an ATM in Tennessee. They contacted the bank, hoping there was security footage of the incident. Then, on November 9th, Irene's body was found just 25 yards from the car. To officers on the scene, it was clear that she'd been murdered. The coroner soon confirmed she'd died from repeated blows to the head. As the search for John continued, news of the horrific attack made local headlines. Police released a surveillance photo from the bank in Tennessee, which showed a tall, thin person in a raincoat using the Bryant's debit card. The suspect's face was obscured, and it's unclear how far the news traveled. Hilton may have heard nothing. 
By the time the cops found Irene, he was already making his way to the Florida panhandle. In the second week of November, he parked his van at a picturesque campsite 10 miles outside Tallahassee. Though the city was close by, the place felt peaceful, next to a popular local fishing spot. For a while, Hilton stalked the families coming and going in camper vans. He never felt rushed. He was willing to wait as long as it took to find the right victim. On the afternoon of Saturday, December 1st, 46-year-old nurse Cheryl Dunlap was on the road in Tallahassee. She just finished running by the bank, Walmart, and the library. After finishing her errands, she pulled over at the park next to the Leon Sinks geological area. It was a beautiful spot to hike with trails leading to narrow caves and pristine creeks. Cheryl trekked down one of the trails and settled down on a bench near the boardwalk to read a book. As far as she knew, she was alone. She had no idea that Hilton was watching her from afar, waiting to strike. Coming up, Hilton throws caution to the wind. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now back to the story. On the afternoon of December 1st, 2007, 61-year-old Gary Michael Hilton had his third victim in his sights. 46-year-old Cheryl Dunlap sat on a bench near the boardwalk, engrossed in a book. The Leon Sinks geological area was just a few miles from Hilton's campsite where Hilton was staying. And as soon as he caught sight of Cheryl, he saw her as prey. He likely ambushed Cheryl with his baton, just as he'd likely done with the Bryants. But rather than kill her there, Hilton abducted Cheryl. He held her captive in the woods for two days. Given what we know about Hilton's history, it's possible he was forcing Cheryl to act as some kind of companion. As a child, he felt unseen and unloved by his mother. Later on, failed relationships hammered home that sense of rejection. Eventually, his feelings crystallized into a misogynistic rage toward women. As we try to make sense of Hilton's actions, it's also worth noting that some accounts suggest he exhibited manic symptoms. In the last episode, we mentioned that Hilton was taking Ritalin. According to later testimony, he also took Effexor, an antidepressant that increases levels of the neurotransmitters serotonin and norepinephrine. This can improve the moods of people with depression, but may also increase the likelihood of a manic episode in people with bipolar disorder. For most people, taking both of these medications will not lead to any complications, 
But Hilton shouldn't have been prescribed Ritalin, and when combined with Effexor, it may have increased symptoms of mania, irritability, and impulsivity. This is different from the mania that might be experienced by a person with bipolar disorder, which Gary Michael Hilton did not have. However, because of Hilton's existing mental health issues and his history of violence, the drug interaction may have played a role in pushing him over the edge. Cheryl was trapped. Sometime in the first week of December, Hilton murdered her. This time, he was determined not to leave any evidence. He partially dismembered Cheryl's body, cutting off her head and hands and attempting to burn them in a fire pit seven miles away. On December 10th, a witness spotted Hilton at a nearby convenience store. This may have been another indication that Hilton was no longer thinking clearly. After killing the Bryants, he made a point of escaping as soon as possible. Now, he seemed to throw caution to the wind. One of the many possible signs of a manic episode is known as flights of ideas. It's a type of disordered thought process where a person jumps rapidly from one subject to the next in a way that feels logical to them but can be hard for anyone else to follow. It often manifests during conversation but can also be an internal process. If he was experiencing flights of ideas, this could explain why Hilton seemed so indecisive. One moment he was taking pains to dispose of Cheryl's body, hours later he openly withdrew money from her bank account. For whatever reason, Hilton didn't seem worried about getting caught, but he should have been. Because back on December 3rd, one of her friends had reported her missing. A few hours after that, a deputy sheriff found her car abandoned on the shoulder of the Crawfordville Highway. The vehicle had a flat tire that looked like it had been purposefully punctured. Cheryl's friends started searching the woods west of the highway. Soon, police discovered that someone had used her ATM card recently to withdraw several hundred dollars. But when they looked at the security footage, they were disappointed to see the suspect always covered his face. He wore glasses and a hat, and in one withdrawal, a mask made of what looked like surgical tape. Hope dwindled as days went by without any sign of Cheryl. In the end, a member of the public finally made a breakthrough. On December 15th, two weeks after her disappearance, Ronnie Rent spotted Cheryl's body in the undergrowth while hunting. Because her head and hands were missing, the medical examiner had to use a sample of muscle tissue from her thigh to confirm her identity. Although the examiner couldn't determine the exact cause of death, he concluded Cheryl was a victim of violent homicide and that her body had lain in the woods for seven to ten days before it was found. There wasn't much to go on. Though the cops received dozens of tips after releasing their description of the suspect, none led to Hilton. At least publicly, no links had been drawn between Irene Bryant's murder and Cheryl's death so far. The two crime scenes were 500 miles apart, and there was no clear similarity between them. But still, rumors spread that a serial killer was on the loose. If Hilton caught wind of the gossip, it didn't concern him. On the contrary, he might have been delighted to know he was building a reputation. After years on the fringes of society, he'd finally become impossible to ignore. Criminologist Eric Hickey, who discussed the case with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper, argued that while Hilton didn't necessarily want to be caught, he did want to be noticed. Hickey said, 
I suspect he wanted his victims to be found. He wants to be heard. He wants to frighten people. He wants to show his power. To him, it's really about having a voice. And Hilton had no intention of disappearing quietly. In late December, he drove through the streets of Tallahassee. We imagine him surrounded by the twinkling of Christmas lights, watching happy families celebrating the holidays. It was everything he lacked. But rather than look inward, Hilton directed his rage outwards. When he tried sleeping that night, it was impossible. Perhaps all he could think about was claiming another victim. But he was starting to feel uneasy about staying in Florida. On December 28th, a forest ranger gave him a warning for driving on a closed road, camping in an unauthorized area, and having an expired driver's license. Although the ranger had no connection with law enforcement and didn't know anything about Hilton's crimes, the interaction made the killer nervous. So he set off again back toward Georgia. No matter how often Hilton tried leaving his home state, he never stayed gone for long. After driving a full day, he arrived at one of the most popular hiking spots in North Georgia, the ominously named Blood Mountain. He'd been thinking about this spot for a long time. He'd hiked there as a younger man. Now he saw it as the ideal place to hunt. He knew the trail would be packed for New Year's Day. All he had to do was wait. On January 1st, around 11 a.m., 24-year-old Meredith Emerson arrived at Blood Mountain. She started her trek at the Byron Herbert Reese Trailhead, accompanied by her black Labrador mix puppy, Ella. She had no idea that she'd already caught a killer's eye. Early on in the hike, Hilton approached her with his own dog, Dandy, and struck up a conversation. The two walked together for a while before eventually splitting up but Hilton waited for her at the end of the trail. As she finished her trek, he drew a weapon out of nowhere. Meredith fought back, but eventually Hilton managed to subdue her. It seems surprising that Hilton wasn't spotted attacking Meredith in broad daylight on a busy hiking trail, but before the attack began, at least one person noticed a petite young woman and a dog walking beside a thin, older man and his dog. One way or another, Hilton abducted both Meredith and her dog. He dragged them through the parking lot with him, then forced her and Ella into his van. The doors locked, and he started driving. Coming up, Hilton seals his own fate. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. On January 1st, 2008, 61-year-old Gary Michael Hilton abducted Meredith Emerson from a busy hiking trail along with her Labrador, Ella. But after that, it seems he didn't have much of a plan for what to do next. He made several unsuccessful attempts to withdraw money using Meredith's debit card. According to lead investigator John Cagle, who chronicled the case in his book, Those Days in January, the attempts failed because Meredith repeatedly gave Hilton the wrong PIN number. She was trying to buy herself time, By the third day of the kidnapping, Hilton was getting desperate. He used a restaurant phone to call his old landlord and employer, John Tabor. In a bizarre move, Hilton once again pleaded with John for money, saying he needed his old job back immediately. Clearly, he wasn't acting completely rationally. That said, money was part of Hilton's goal, since he always tried to get cash from his victims. It just wasn't his main motivation. Criminologist Eric Hickey suggested to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that money was secondary for Hilton, almost a bonus. He said, this was about power. When you consider his comfort in the woods, that is where he felt most powerful, and that's why he killed them where he did. The forest was the place Hilton felt he belonged. Killing his victims in the woods was like murdering them in his own home. But according to Hilton's account, he held her captive in his van and at the campsite for three and a half days. Meanwhile, Meredith's roommate had already raised the alarm when she didn't return from her hike. On January 2nd, a family friend reported her missing. After they found her car in the Blood Mountain Trailhead parking lot, search efforts began. By the next day, the trail had been closed entirely as law enforcement combed the area with hundreds of volunteers. The police put out a notice to the public for any information about Meredith. The trail had been busy that day, so they hoped that somebody saw something. Sure enough, multiple witnesses reported that Meredith was on the trail with Ella. Several recalled seeing a strange-looking man walking close to her. They all described Hilton, but the authorities had no way of knowing the culprit's name. Then, on January 3rd, another call came in. It was John Tabor. Badgering his old employer for money turned out to be an even stupider idea than Hilton imagined. After the bizarre phone call, Hilton had been at the forefront of John's mind. So when he heard a description of the suspect on the news, he made the connection right away. John told the police about Hilton's increasingly volatile behavior and threats of violence. He also mentioned Hilton's habit of carrying weapons, including an expandable baton. He gave the authorities a detailed description of the white van, including the license plate number. By the afternoon of January 3rd, Hilton's photograph was all over the news. More and more witnesses called in to confirm he was the man they'd seen with Meredith. The next day, a woman called to report that she'd spotted Meredith's dog, Ella, at a grocery store parking lot in Cumming. Officers rushed to the scene and recovered Ella, but they couldn't find any trace of her owner. They worried time was running out. Hilton knew from the local newspaper that the police were hot on his trail. 
By January 4th, Meredith had spent three days with Hilton. She had fought for herself repeatedly until she was too tired to continue. She did everything she could to stay alive. But by the time Ella was recovered, Hilton had already bludgeoned Meredith to death with a carjack. He decapitated her in the hopes that it would make her body harder to identify. He left her remains in Dawson Forest, an area of dense woodland about 60 miles north of Atlanta. Then he drove an hour south, stopping first at a convenience store to dispose of some evidence. He then parked at an Atlanta gas station. At around 8 p.m., a witness spotted Hilton tossing some items in the dumpster. At this point, Hilton's name and photo had been released to the press, and the man immediately recognized him as the kidnapping suspect. He called 911. Hilton might as well have walked right to a police station and turned himself in. Within moments, officers had descended on the gas station and arrested him. Though it was a huge breakthrough, the police were still looking for Meredith. Hilton kept his mouth shut while he waited for his public defender. In the meantime, thanks to another called-in tip, detectives recovered Meredith's wallet and clothing. There was too much blood on the clothing to hope she was still alive, but they were determined to bring her body home. Soon, the Georgia police connected Hilton to his other victims. The killer knew the game was up, but he refused to say anything unless the authorities gave him something in return. So after some negotiation, prosecutors struck a deal. They would take the death penalty off the table if he told them where to find Meredith's body. On the evening of January 7th, detectives recovered her remains using the directions Hilton gave them. After days of agony, her family and friends had a semblance of closure. They were at least spared the ordeal of a lengthy trial. As part of his deal to avoid the death penalty, Hilton agreed to plead guilty. On January 31, 2008, a judge sentenced him to life in prison for the murder of Meredith Emerson. Part of the reason for the fast-tracked trial might have been because there were two other states waiting to charge him with homicide, too. In early February, John Bryant's remains were finally found in the Nantahala National Forest by a hunter. After they'd been positively identified, investigators in North Carolina charged Hilton with the murders of Irene and John Bryant. They discovered a photograph of Hilton using the Bryant's bank card shortly after their disappearances. Later that month, a grand jury in Florida indicted him for murdering Cheryl Dunlap. Hilton was extradited to Florida to stand trial. He pled not guilty. And this time, prosecutors had every intention of pursuing the death penalty. In April of 2011, he was found guilty and sentenced to die. A few months later, he was indicted for the kidnapping, robbery, and murder of Irene and John Bryant. He pled guilty and in 2013 was given four life sentences. As of March 2023, 77-year-old Hilton was one of nearly 300 prisoners awaiting execution in Florida. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with another episode. 
For more information on Hilton, amongst the many sources we used, we found John Cagle's book, Those Days in January, and Fred Rosen's Trails of Death, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Emma Dibdin, edited by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. 